Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Mark chapter 14. We're going to continue going through the book of Mark. Um, So as you're looking for that, I want you to think with me about food for just a second. Is that that a hard stretch? I don't think that's a hard stretch, right? Um, As we think about it, think of maybe, I feel like I'm a pretty uh, traditional guy. Like we, me and my wife, we enjoy having certain traditions, certain foods at certain occasions. Maybe you're like that. I know for myself, like Thanksgiving cannot pass by without me uh, consuming red hot jello. And if you've never had red hot jello, then I'm sorry. Uh, but it is, it's, it has to be a part of, of my adventure through the, the holiday season. And likewise, we just passed through uh, Father's Day, and I have a very strict plan of what has to happen on Father's Day. Because um, it's my day, right? I mean, as soon as the church is over with, uh, you know, we go home, and I do the same thing every single year, and I sit down on the couch one child brings me white powdered donuts, and the other child brings me Red Bull. I know, it's, it's, it's not for you, maybe not. It's for me, okay? And it's a, I can't explain the combination, but it's perfect. And uh, I receive it with joy, and I sit there, and I eat, you can ask Casey, like, I eat a lot of donuts on that day. Uh, that is my day, and I cannot have, do not buy me white powdered donuts. It's not a gift for me, because I consume it like a, a wild animal. But on that day is my day to consume the things that I want. And so we have throughout our lives uh, moments where food is important, and it may even signify something of great importance, but nothing more greater than what we're going to be looking at today in our text. And so again, Mark chapter 14, and we'll, we'll kind of jump into that here in a moment of the significance um, of what that meal is and the meal that will follow. So again, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Will you stand with me one last time just to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? 
And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, for this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that we wouldn't just be hearers, but doers of that word. We thank you for its perfection, its life, and the hope that is derived from it. Lord, we pray blessings over the remainder of our service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the Feast of Passover, along with the Feast of Unlived Bread, was the first of the festivals to be commanded by God to Israel to observe. Okay, so there are still today commemorations that involve a special meal that is called a Seder meal. I don't, if you've maybe ever been a part of one, I've only been a part of one, and it was amazing. Um, but it's a meal that would feature unlived bread and other foods that are symbolic of various aspects that you find in the book of Exodus. And so Passover is one of the three pilgrimages that they're called pilgrimage festivals in scripture and during which the Jews would come from all over and they would travel to Jerusalem and observe the feast together. And so we have Passover, which is very symbolic. And, and maybe if you know a ton about Passover, then just kind of bear with me for the next few moments and let me explain to you the significance of it. In Exodus chapter 12, you see this story unfold and you're probably familiar with it or have seen at least maybe a cartoon of it or something of Moses going to Pharaoh and and saying like, you know, let the people go, right? Let my people go over and over telling them and then him, his heart being hardened and not releasing the people of Israel. And so we see plague after plague that is disposed upon the people there in Egypt and, and Pharaoh is not relenting in his holding of the people of God. And so there's 10 plagues, as you might recall, that the water turns to blood. There are frogs, there is lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then finally, death. And so the night of the first Passover, you can find, and, and we're not going to read through all the scripture there, but again, Exodus chapter 12 is the night of the first Passover. It was the night of the 10th and final plague. Moses had said to Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. After the darkness, there's going to be this angel of death that's going to come. And on that night, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb and to mark their doorposts with its blood. And so he tells the people, he says, look, you need to get a lamb and sacrifice this thing and go to your homes and, and go to the places where, of all the, the beams in your home and the, the lintrals and the, the, the doorposts and cover it with blood. And then when the Lord passed through the nation, 
he would pass over the homes that had the blood that was covered. So that's where we get this word Passover. It is literally this angel of death passing over those that were marked by the blood of this lamb. And so in a very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death. As it kept the destroyer from entering their homes, the Israelites were saved from the plagues and from that plague in particular, and their firstborn was able to stay alive. That was the, the consequence that was said by Moses to Pharaoh that if, if this doesn't happen, that the firstborn of every family is going to be lost. And so the children of Israel in Egypt followed God's commands and they kept the first Passover. And if you know the story, it's tragic of how the Egyptians did not do so. In fact, I'll read this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. It says, And at midnight the Lord struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the livestock of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. What a terrifying moment. What a dark moment. I can't even imagine being an Israelite in that time and, and hearing the wailing happening in the city, hearing those in anguish. I mean, like we don't, we don't want this on anybody, right? I mean, this is a horrible moment of judgment. And so along with the instruction to apply the Passover lamb's blood to the doorpost, God institutes this commemorative meal of Passover where, the, where they would bring a fire-roasted lamb and they would add to it bitter herbs and unlivid bread. And, the, and the, the Lord told the Israelites that you are to observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever, even in foreign lands. This was a meal far beyond any meal that we could in, endure, you know, have today or celebrate today. Far greater than, than Thanksgiving, far greater than a Christmas you know, ham, far greater than white powder donuts on Father's Day. This is something far beyond it was a meal that was ordained by God that represented his saving work. That's Passover. And so for us to understand that Jesus sees this as an extreme important time. In fact, he is so close to being arrested. In fact, he's only hours away from being arrested. And yet he sees that it is important and vital that he and the disciples go to this place and have this moment. Talk about... Uh, Keeping perspective, right? I mean, in a whirlwind of things that ever, you ever get so overwhelmed that you just forget about the simplest things. I was riding down the road not too long ago, heading to the coffee shop and realized my slippers were still on my feet. That is just, that's just me making an error. But you know, I'm a slipper guy and I can sometimes walk out of the house and just realize, but you got tons of stuff going on and you just forget, Right. Maybe you've, you've put on the wrong thing or, had the, or just forgot stuff that you just thought, man, it's such a part of my routine. But we get overwhelmed. And if ever there was a time where Jesus could have said, you know, I'm just going like, to skip that this time. I mean, he had done it every year his entire life. And he's just, he's 
literally hours away from his arrest. And he deems it important, so important that he gives instructions to his disciples as to what they should do. Look again at verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Jesus is saying to them, you got, I need two of you to go ahead and just find the most random person. And the reason why it is the most random is because you couldn't find a man carrying a jar of water at this time. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a thing. If, it, there were only two types of people that would carry a, a jar of water around. One either was a woman or a slave. So for him to have said, go and find a man with a jar of water, even the disciples might have thought, well, I mean, good luck to us. It's going to be it's a little specific, Jesus. But Jesus is specific. He doesn't just leave anything up to chance. He is direct and he is meaningful, purposeful in his commands. This, this text reminds me of Mark chapter 11 when we were there a while back. In verse 1, it says, Jesus, again, sends two of his disciples and say, says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will see a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. What? Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is in need of it, and we will send it back here immediately. Again, Jesus just sends people and is like, you're going to go and do this thing. I can't, I mean, at this point, I would imagine maybe the disciples are not asking Jesus questions anymore. Maybe, maybe they're just like, you know what? It's going to happen. We're going to get there and there's going to be a random guy with a jar of water and we're going to walk and we're going to follow him to his house. And when we get there, we're going to say, our teacher said you had a room for us. And sure enough, there was one. And so like our text today, or as we saw in Mark 11 and now in Mark 14, Jesus sends two of his disciples for a specific task, finding this man who is carrying a jar of water, a rare thing to find. And so some, uh, some do believe that Jesus had maybe prearranged this sign. I think most people think that it was Jesus speaking from his divine nature on a su having supernatural knowledge. And so we see these two natures at play here. Jesus's supernatural, his divine nature is at work. Jesus knew that down to the very last detail, what was happening. He knew that he was only hours away from this. He knew that he was going to be arrested. He knew how he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to be tortured, beaten, and crucified. And he knew all the details behind it. And yet he not only embraces it, but the scripture says he joyfully embraces it. What? He joyfully embraces the suffering. If you don't believe me, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Such confidence in God's will. 
confidence in God's will that should even inspire us to trust him, even when the road of our lives becomes painful, difficult, or even deadly, knowing that God is in control. So time and time again, Jesus gives his disciples, uh, he gives to them reasons to look back and to see all the things that he knew that was going to take place in how they took place exactly how he said. And so this had to have, we would hope, build the disciples' confidence. It should in our own lives build our confidence in the Lord that we can be confident in him, knowing that everything that he has said has come true, and we can trust that everything that is still to come that he has said will, will in fact. And so we see that Jesus cares about the details. In fact, think about even the details of your own life. Think about the circumstances that even brought you here today, where you're even seated in this room. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, how close to death that you may have ever felt that you were, you are here today seated exactly where you are hearing what Jesus knew you would hear before you were even born. Isn't that amazing that all of our stories, though they are different and complicated and dramatic and full of joy and terror and turmoil and suffering, all of our stories right now collide in this moment to hear God's word. It's amazing. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, well, I'm just here because I was, I was invited or I was pressured or I'm not really supposed to be here. No, 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 no. Jesus says, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Again, just showing like the details of you just thought that this was, you just thought you were here maybe out of inconvenience or obligation or even commitment. Or maybe you showed up because you wanted to hear God's word and you wanted to worship with God's people. Regardless, Jesus knows because Jesus knows the details of even your, of all the details of your life. So the question may be, well, if this is true, if Jesus knows the details of my life, then why have I, I faced all the pain that I have faced? I mean, if Jesus has been there, if he's known every single thing, I mean, Jesus has known when I'm going to fall down and scrape my knee. Yeah. Some of you have suffered great loss in your life. Some of you have been deeply wounded by those in the church. Some of you have been deeply wounded by those outside of the church. Maybe you've experienced even deep betrayal. Maybe that's what has you hesitant to worship with God's people is that God's people haven't always been kind to you. They haven't always been loving to you. They've been hypocritical at times. It's one thing to think that God is in control when things are going good, isn't it? When everything is going good, like praise God, like everything is going great. I'm healthy, wife's healthy, kids are healthy, money in the account, food on the table, like praise God. It's easy to say God did that when life is going well. But do we still believe it when we don't get the things we had hoped for? This is a good question, and it's a, it's a challenging question. We see Joseph in, in Genesis when his brothers uh, capture him and sell him off to slavery, and he goes through all of these trials and, and one day is, is uh, confronted by his brothers again who had done this horrible deed against him. 
And Joseph says, yeah, but, but like what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. Joseph was able to see through a lens that of trusting God no matter what, of when something horrible happened in his life, him saying, you know what? I'm just going to have to trust the God who I know is good. I'm just going to have to trust the God who's always been, who always will be. Like this little moment that I'm looking at right now. Yeah, I'm in this dungeon. I'm in this pit. I'm being sold off to slavery. I'm having all of these horrible things happen to me, but I just have to trust that God is still who he says he is. Trust me, it is easier said than done. Because when you are in the den, when you are in the furnace, when you are in the pit, that is a tough place to say you are good. And yet he is. Let's look back to our text. In verse 17 it says, Now when it was evening, he came with the twelve And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, or to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written, Of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it would be better if that man had not been born at all. And so we see in the beginning of our text today that Jesus predicts something that is good, right? That that you're going to go and you're going to find a man with a jar of water. and, And they see that all of this has taken place precisely how Jesus said it would. And now they find themselves in that place in that banquet room that has been set up and prepared for them. And it had to have been encouraging, again, for the disciples to just walk in and and see that it was all exactly how Jesus said it would be. They had to have had a wonderful meal. I just imagine, again, like a Seder meal is such, there's uh, so much fun to it. There's songs to it. There's dancing to it. There's, there, there's moments of remembrance and joy and food that's good. And this is all the things that they were having. And they had to have been sitting there thinking, wow, everything that Jesus has said has come to pass. And then Jesus drops them on them, this on them. And so now we've seen these two predictions in a short period of time, one being good and the other being the opposite. And how Jesus knew this, we're not told, but regardless, he knew. The psalmist would say in Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Fulfilling what even the psalmist had spoken about thousands of years or a thousand year prior saying that this was going to be a time where even the close friend betrayed. And so in our text, we see that the close friend, there is a close friend of Jesus and he narrows it down to the betrayal that's going to take place, that being one of his 12 disciples, the ones that are the, the most intimate, the most trusted companions If you have ever felt deep betrayal, it can take that, it can almost feel like the the air is just out of your lungs. It can feel so confusing and so perplexing. Someone who you had shared meals with and and had been vulnerable with and had, had cried with and laughed with, and now they're against you. 
I mean, if we can imagine betrayal because we experience it, how much more was the betrayal that Jesus must have endured? Here is one who has done nothing wrong. And I think it's interesting that his disciples heard him say this and they, as they go down the line and begin to ask, is it I? What an interesting question that, that it was almost as if they all knew they were capable of this. They all knew that, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hope not, but I guess I could be the one that betrays you. I mean, they were all squirming in their seats knowing that, I mean, Jesus said it, so it's going to happen. It's going to be one of the 12. They understood that they were depraved and still, still in, in many ways that they still struggled with sin, that they saw that Jesus didn't, but they did. In Titus, we see our, our former nature on display in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is who we once were. And we can imagine ourselves in that, way, in that way, right? Can't you picture yourself being a sinner? It's not that hard to do, is it? I mean, it's, it's so hard to picture us having been glorified on the other side of glory. I mean, I don't know what exactly that looks like. I don't know if we're still allowed to be competitive with one another. I mean, I hope we're still playing ball there. I, I still hope that we're doing things. I hope that we're able to, to communicate. But I mean, truly and honestly, I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't, none of us know what it's like to just see someone and not like judge them at all and not have any insecurity at all and, and look at them and truly trust them and truly love them. It's hard to picture ourselves like that, but to picture ourselves as disobedient, we can do that, right? Are you with me? Are you all alive today? <laughs> Are you with me? Okay, good, man. This room gets dead silent. Just making sure, like we can picture ourselves being foolish. We can picture ourselves being disobedient, led astray. We can picture ourselves being slaves to various passions and pleasures. Can't we? We've been there. Passing our days in malice and envy, hating each other. We understand, and so do the disciples. They knew their nature. Is it me, Jesus? Am I going to be the one? And we see in our text, verse 21, for the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. For it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So of course we know that Judas is the one that Jesus is speaking of. Even though Judas's betrayal was ordained according to God's plan, he was morally responsible for his free will action. Jesus will be betrayed and crucified according to God's predetermined will, but this in no way relieved Judas of his responsibility or his guilt. So there is this divine mystery that is taking place that, that I don't think we're, we're really ever going to completely understand on this side of glory. 
this divine mystery that we can embrace the truth and the tension of the divine sovereignty of God, that he is over all, above all, that there is not a rogue molecule, that before the foundations of the earth, he knew that I was going to do that. There is nothing that tricks him. There is nothing that gets past him. God is never the student. He never learns. He doesn't look down the quarters of time and see our decisions and then becomes aware of it. He knows and has always known. And so the great mystery is that this doesn't cancel out human freedom or moral responsibility, that they are both true and we affirm them both, that God is fully sovereign and you are fully responsible. God is not the student. He is the teacher. And so the answer to each of the disciples' questions of, is it I, it requires the answer yes from each of them. That yes, Judas betrayed Jesus on that night, but by the morning, all the disciples would have betrayed him. That Judas betrayed him with greed, but the rest of him would betray him with weakness and fear and Cowardness. But what about you and I? Each one of us is a Judas in that every sin that we commit is a personal act of betrayal against Jesus. Yet this is where the grace of the gospel shines so brightly. That even those who betray the great king and the glorious savior can experience immediate and complete forgiveness through grace, through faith and repentance. Maybe you've heard someone say that you cannot out the grace of God. In grace, it is God that forgives and he provides the strength for us to move forward in the family of the forgiven. That is us. We are the family of the forgiven. We are the ones that come together and said, yes, I have been horrible. I have had, I've done maybe horrible things or horrible things have happened and I have sinned against the father. And yet there's grace all the more. When people criticize the church saying that it's filled with hypocrites, we say, yes, and you are invited and you will fit in wonderfully. Right? That, that yes, we admit that, that we say one thing and do something else quite often. We are wrestling against not just flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual war that is taking place. A church that is filled with people who are humble about their weakness, who are admittedly in need of a Savior, is ready to receive those from the outside who resemble their former selves. A church that points at the world and can, can bear no association with it whatsoever, can, can say like, I, I don't know anything about that. That church has lost its touch. It's forgotten who it was and where they had come from. They had forgotten the sins that they had committed. They've forgotten the betrayal that they themselves had against Jesus. And so, yeah, we can look at someone who's screaming and, and laughing, trying to, to get abortion to remain legal, and we can point and, and criticize those people, but they are sinners in need of a Savior. 
Don't you remember being a sinner in need of a savior? Remember that today because we are sinners in need of a savior. Broken people coming together. This is, what we, this is where we get our name. Mosaic is this, this idea of all these broken pieces coming together and creating something beautiful. Let me tell you, if you feel like you are not enough to be sitting in here, if church just has never been your thing, if you just feel like you've done too much, you've sinned too much, you don't know the things that I've done, you don't even know the things that I did on the way here, you might be thinking. Let me say to you today, there is nothing that can outweigh the gift of God's grace. There is nothing that when the blood is over the doorpost, there is a pass over. And so we see our former selves. The disciples saw their former selves knowing and asking, is it I? And we ask ourselves today when we, when we are butted up against the law and it is said that you must fulfill this. When Jesus says, you need to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect, he wasn't, that wasn't a cliche. It wasn't a metaphor. He was saying, I need from you perfection. Do you have it? And your answer is no. Do you need it? Your answer is yes. In Titus, we see the in verse 3, I want, to, I want to read it again because I, it, it should resonate with all of us. We should be able to look at that list and just check off and say, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness... And loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of the works done in us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. If you're wondering, well, how do I get out of this mess? How do I get out of foolishness and disobedience and being led astray and slaves to the pleasures of this world? I will point you to his goodness, to his loving kindness, that he saved, he saved us not by your works, not by any effort that you could do. And so he, as they're all sitting there, Judas knows it's him. I mean, one one gospel says that he just runs out of the room. It's like, I'm out. Yeah, it's me. And the 11 had to have been sitting there thinking, whoa, this is about to end. This is really about to end. Our, our earthly walking with you, Jesus, is actually about to go. What a... Like, I don't know if you've ever like planned up to something for years and years and you finally get to that moment and you're just like, wow, this is surreal. I can't believe that I'm actually doing this or I'm actually participating in this. And I can't, can't imagine the, the 
terror that the disciples must have felt in that moment. Like here they were enjoying Passover, enjoying this thing that they had enjoyed for their entire lives with their families. And here they got to sit down with Jesus and he was the one who was leading this. But then Jesus does what Jesus always does. He, he will slap them with their reality and then reveal to them their hope. Verse 22 in our text, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus now institutes what we call the Last Supper. What we do every week after week, we come to the table and we receive the elements and we remember and here we see for the very first time it being put into practice. And though it is referred to as uh, the Last Supper, it, it might could even be referred to as the First Supper. It inaugurates the new covenant. He is, he is shifting things and saying there's a change that's taking place right this second. Let me remind you that, that Jesus is sitting with 11 Jewish men who find this meal of high importance. That's an understatement. I mean, they regarded this meal as something that even in their panic of Jesus seemingly about to be arrested, they still find this is that important. And so at this meal was included, there was four points in which the presider, which would have been Jesus in this moment, would hold up a glass of wine. And there were four moments throughout the, the meal in which Jesus would get up and explain the feast's meaning. So he would get up and explain you know, exactly why and what's going on and what had happened in Exodus and the, the rescue that took place. And there would be four cups of wine that would be presented throughout it that God made to have significance the four would represent this. The first one in this Passover meal would represent that he, the rescuing that took place of the people of Israel from Egypt. The second one would be received as the freedom that they find now not being under slavery. The third cup would be the redemptive work of God's power. And then finally, how you would end the Passover meal would be the last cup which would be a representative of the renewed relationship with the Father, something new, some, a new fellowship with him. When we come to this place, maybe if it seems repetitive to you, it's because we admit that we need to be renewed of this over and over. However, the cup that Jesus lifts to institute the sacrament was the third cup, not the fourth cup. So when he lifts this third cup, everything was going exactly how Passover meal had always went, with the exception that Jesus is leading it, right? I mean, it would normally have been these, these men themselves with their families or their father or someone, a spiritual leader. 
And everything is going exactly how every Passover meal would have went for any Jewish person during this time, how it had always went, that is, until Jesus leaves the script. And what he says next are the words of either the Son of God or a criminally insane person. Because he, he says that he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. The new covenant, like the old covenant, is a blood covenant. And so he, going back to, to where they had come from, he's expressing to them the freedom that, they are fine, that, that, they, that their ancestors had enjoyed through the Passover. And yet he's explaining to them and explaining to us today that his death made possible a new and greater exodus. As we were set free from our slavery to sin. I mean, we can read history and we can be impacted by it. And we can say, wow, like those people were captive to something and they were set free. That Pharaoh really had a, a strong hand on them. And yet God in his, in his just mercy allowed them to be free. And we can somewhat associate with that. But let me tell you today that if you are in sin, then you are in bondage and you are a slave to that sin and you have been captured by it. And Jesus holds up the bread that represented their freedom from slavery. He holds it up and he doesn't just say like, hey, remember what happened in Exodus chapter six? They didn't have chapters then, I know. Remember what happened in Exodus? Remember what happened in the Torah when, when the people, he holds up the bread and, and he doesn't just say, look at this and remember it. He holds up the bread and says, I am the bread. He looks to them and says, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many. Jesus came and he died for a specific people. And listen to me, those people are covered in his blood. When you face the father, when you face the Lord in judgment one day, he is not going to look at what style you had, what works you did. what He's not going to look at any of those things. He's going to look and he's going to see, is the blood covering him? That's what we say when we say that, that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, that we put on his righteousness, that when we approach a holy and perfect God hesitantly, for sure. But when we do, he sees through us and to his son in which has clothed us with his righteousness. Jesus came and died for a specific people. And so the meal was almost over at this point. And normally the father of the family that would be presiding over this meal would point to, to, the, to the final glass of wine, the fourth cup, and the family would sing Psalms 116 through 118. And then the, the Passover meal would conclude with the drinking of the final glass and, and everyone rejoicing that, that look what the Lord has done. 
And Jesus ends things differently. He leaves the cup on the table full. And he says, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Whereas normally the final cup ended the Passover meal, but the final difference here is what now follows. Instead of ending things and abbreviating their fellowship, because that's what the fourth cup represented, this renewed fellowship with the Father. And instead of abbreviating their fellowship and just saying, hey, we'll be back to this again next year, guys, he indicates to them that that he has planned to extend it. And so he added to the day that when I drank this anew in the kingdom of God, the cup that which normally usually brought the Passover to the end would now be drinked at the beginning of the time of endless fellowship with the Lord. The fourth cup that was supposed to represent the end of fellowship will now signify the beginning of eternal fellowship. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived by this world and all that it has to offer, all of the things, all of even its false beauty. Do not be deceived by it. And do not be deceived by what you conjure up in your mind as to being righteousness in and of yourselves. Do not think that just coming to church will save you or just making sure that your kids know their scripture, scripture verse in kids' church will save you. Not, make sure that you don't think that anything in and of yourselves will save you. Because there had to be a perfect spotless lamb that was sacrificed for sinners who their sacrifice in and of themselves was not worthy, but there was one, and he is Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.